near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side, and the music album Home, both of which can be found on our website, neardeathexperiencepodcast.org. Today I'm going to share a couple of short near-death experiences, and then I'd like to uh, talk about uh, some somewhat related things, um, which I hope you'll find of interest. But we'll start today by reading the account of Stuart from Enderf.org, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website. Stuart says, It was my day off, and I was traveling to pick up a friend to spend the day with. I was approaching an intersection and had to turn right. When I started to apply the brakes, something happened with them causing the car to slide. Later, when looking at the road and accident site where three black lines from the tires and one long silver gouge from something that had dug into the road, when I left the road, I was traveling diagonal to the flow of traffic in a six to seven foot deep ditch at around 50 miles per hour and had no control of the car. The last thing I remember before what I have been told was my NDE was the sound and vision of the impact. I must add that I always wore my seatbelt. My near-death experience as I remember it started with me seeing all the blades of grass, the dirt, the soil, and the small bushes as clearly as if I were within inches of them. I had perfect vision, and in such clear clarity, it was amazing. Within a couple minutes, I found myself in a pitch-dark area that felt like a large room. I wasn't moving, but I could see a pinprick of light that was getting closer. Soon I realized that I was in a tunnel and that the light was moving towards me. I wasn't scared of the light as it was peaceful and or calming. I did sense other people, but didn't feel the need or want to speak or let them know I was there. As the light got closer, A person came out from the tunnel wall and stood in front of me. As I focused on the figure, I realized that it was my granddad, who had passed several years ago. At that time, I still blamed myself for his passing. He told me that it wasn't my time and to go back. The next thing that I remember was collapsing on the edge of the road 
and holding my chest. I don't know how I got out of the car or how I got my seatbelt off. I somehow lost time. I was taken to the hospital, given tests, and released. My parents picked me up from the hospital, and we stopped back at the accident site. Unless you were looking down the ditch, you would have driven past without seeing the car. I have no idea how long I was away from my body, even if I did leave it. But something did happen, and only now do I want to share it without fear of feeling crazy. That's the end of Stuart's account. Now, there are some pretty cool things in Stuart's account, especially the meeting of his grandfather, who had passed away several years ago. It's interesting to me that although at that time, as he said it, he still blamed himself for his passing, for his grandfather's passing, um, his grandfather doesn't address that, but addresses the more pressing matter of telling Stuart that it wasn't his time and that it was time to go back. So that's an interesting thing. But the thing that kind of stands out to me, and I have heard this in several near-death experiences, is in those moments of death, when, when he is still here, but he is kind of not here, so to speak. He's in that, you know, it, it sounds like he, this is when the car is careening into the ditch. Um, the way he describes it, he says, I remember it seeing with, uh, let's see, starting with me seeing all the blades of grass, the dirt, soil, and the small bushes as clearly as if I were within inches of them. Now, it's one thing that he, he um, you know, just remembers them very clearly. That kind of makes sense. He's experiencing trauma as he's seeing these things, which is going to embed it or impress it permanently in his mind. But what he goes on to say is, I had perfect vision, and in such clarity it was amazing. He's not saying I was terrified. He's not saying I was you know, that I was in this state of shock. He was, he had this perfect vision. He could see it all. And in this clarity, he felt, if I'm understanding him correctly, he feels amazing. And within a couple of minutes, so I imagine maybe he's stopped at this point. The car is, you know, at a stopped point. And he is seeing and experiencing with incredible clarity and vision. And this it's the clarity that's standing out to him that comes across to him as amazing. Seeing the blades of grass, the bushes, the dirt, the soil. It's all so clear as if he is seeing them individually and, and straight on. And you'll see in a few minutes why I find that interesting. Okay, he, he does go on. Let me also say that that um, as he goes on to the tunnel and so forth, he says, I wasn't scared of the light as it was peaceful and or calming. And he felt that other people were there, but he didn't feel the, the inclination to try to talk to them in any way. Okay, let's go on to the next one. And this one is, also, is even shorter, also on endurf.org. This is Marty. Marty says, I was aware of a great feeling of peace 
and tranquility. I sat on a grass hill overlooking a shallow stream, and down to my right there was an old stone bridge where the track ran away into the woods. There were several children there. They appeared to be dressed in Victorian clothing. The boys and girls were pr playing around the bridge. I was just looking at them and thinking how peaceful it was. Then suddenly I had this thought. What was I doing here? I was supposed to be in school. Then just as that thought came to me, it was almost like having a bucket of water splashed in my face. I opened my eyes and I was on the floor surrounded by school children. One child was astride me and slapping my face. I remember them saying that I, they thought I was dead. Okay. Um, so, I should say, and that's the end of the account, I, I should say in the beginning of this, he was attacked um, by an older schoolboy, and uh, which is what led to his near-death experience. So, the beginning of this, it's not that he was in this really tranquil location and... Uh, he was actually just at school and was beat up at school. And uh, um, a, a strangulation took place. I'm not going to go into the details that he explains in the, in the uh, further questions and so forth. But, uh, but basically he was attacked, had this near-death experience. And in this experience, that this is where I find it very interesting. He says, there's a great feeling of peace and tranquility, and he's in this landscape, this beautiful landscape, over a grassy hill, on a grassy hill, overlooking a shallow stream, and there was an old stone bridge, where the track, I don't know what kind of track, train track, I'm not sure, ran away into the woods, maybe a path, something like that, ran off into the woods. There were children there, and they're dressed in these old-fashioned, he says, Victorian clothing. And they were playing around the bridge. And he's just looking at them and thinking about how peaceful it was when he realizes he's supposed to be um, at school. So I want you to picture him being in this beautiful landscape, looking down, down over this bridge, um, and seeing the children playing and thinking how peaceful it was. Because this peacefulness, this moments of quiet, joyful peace, is one of those things that I think is not unreachable in this life. Our memories usually are unreachable. Our memories of previous, you know, uh, life before, uh, coming to earth or coming to this life, uh, you know, our, our memories are not available to us for the most part. And our relationships on the other side are not available to us here. They will be available to us again from everything that we see in near-death experiences. It appears that those will all be returned to us. On this earth, things are dulled you know, as far as color, as far as the feelings and so forth, they are dulled, and yet, and yet, moments can come that, uh, of peace, of tranquility, um, that match the description of what both Marty and Stuart experience on the other side. Now, I, uh, 
I know that that was two very short experiences, but um, I wanted to read you something that I wrote yesterday. I uh, Several years ago, I uh, was talking with my family and uh, my siblings. We're a very close family, and we like to play and joke around and goof off together and so forth, but we also like to have very serious discussions, spiritual discussions. We're, you know, anyway, uh, I was mentioning to them how nice it would be to come up with words for things that don't have words uh, for them yet. And we were kind of coming up with a few of these. And one that I I tried to describe to them the experience, and I and it's and it's a hard one to describe, and um, and I talked with them and and got them kind of understanding what it was I was talking about, and then we decided to come up with the word nostalgia. Now I may have mentioned that word in this uh, podcast, but yesterday it was Sunday afternoon and. I was in kind of a spiritual mood a little bit and thought, what if I were to try to describe it? And and that is very difficult to do because it is um, something that is both simple, almost unnoticeable most of the time, and yet sometimes deeply profound also. And so I, what I did is I tried to use a little bit of poetic language to describe to try to describe this. And I bring it up here in this podcast because I think that nostalgia, as I'm going to call it, is something that is available to us here, which is something of a crack in the veil. And it is not something that takes too much time or effort, prayer and meditation. It is sort of a meditative thing, um, and I don't know if if my uh, writing here is going to explain it well or not, but I hope that it will describe the feeling. And it's it's a feeling that comes on at sometimes very random moments, sometimes very conscious moments seeking it. But uh, anyway, so again, I call this nostalgia. From every silent moment, from every distant star, from every sleeping cottage that kisses the horizon as it dreams, tendrils reach out into the void, seeking out the few. You're not likely to notice them. They're as still as the universes they consume. They're countless atoms in chaotic flurry, forming a still and soundless form that can be passed by, walked on, and forgotten. All the while, invisible electricity passes between the distant shore and their infinite soul. They are the watchers. They see with eyes, yes, and ears and tongues and tears, but they also see with longing. It's not lustful fantasy, regretful mourning, or even curious interest. It's not nostalgia for what was, is, could have been or might one day be. It's not the wistful feelings of regret, jealousy, hope, or even fear. Theirs is the quiet, infinite connection that creates and then penetrates the rifts in time and space. 
if they appear to stare 100 miles, it's because the eyes cannot fathom the light years of distance, nor the microscopic closeness of the thing with which they connect. They may not even be aware of it themselves, since this vision steps outside of that construct we call self. It walks wordlessly with them, companionably sharing a connection that may last only a brief moment or 100,000 years. It's all the same to them. Given a choice of what to do with this sensation, they are likely not to make one. For a choice is an act to change, and they prefer to observe. But like it or not, change does occur, not to the observed, but to the watcher who sits in quiet contemplation of what is, or appears to be, absolutely nothing, but which settles fitfully and comfortably into the soul of the watcher. In this state, the watcher learns that within a moment stands eternity. Within one being, all stand together. All and nothing and breakfast and asteroids, and in every place is a fresh and new infinity, older than the cosmos and shorter than a movie trailer. But then it comes time to turn the car, or check on the cake, or break up an argument, and the watcher becomes again a self. And unbeknownst to the self, between these rare infinite moments of sweeping comprehension, an ordinary life goes on, completely unaware that in the thousands of silent moments and sleeping cottages of everyday life, other selves quiet touch a tendril, and watch. Okay, so I hope that isn't as nonsensical as I fear it may sound. But the point in all of it is to say that there are moments, and we can invite them in. They're not, they don't have to be completely happenstantial or, or, situations where they just come on un, you know unexpected we can actually invite them by allowing ourselves to go into subtle short meditative states where we just observe i find them coming very easily at night when it's quiet at least quiet around immediately around me looking out over a city sometimes over a forest or landscape, sometimes just seeing distant lights of a suburb and just wondering, as I look at the distant houses, what kind of universe exists within that household. There is a family or an individual striving to make ends meet, perhaps experiencing a new relationship that they're excited about, or mourning an old one where they're somewhat dying inside, and yet in all those changes and, and moments of boredom and freedom and fear and anger and joy, is every moment of a person's life happening all over the world at the same time. It's like you're, you're looking out over a situation, a moment, 
and you feel this, it's like a tendril. That's why I use the word tendril. It's like it reaches out to you and touches you, touches your soul. They're completely unaware of it. Now, if I've mentioned it, it then perhaps I uh, have mentioned um, one time that it came on so quickly and unexpectedly that it kind of took me off guard. I was driving down the road through probably the biggest part of a very small town. I think we all have an idea of what those look like. Um, kind of a an old city in a very, very small town, you might say. I was driving through one of these and, and passed a couple of houses, and I just glanced over. I, I think I was just looking to see, you know, if, if there was anybody in, in a, you know, in an oncoming lane or something, just doing one of these routine traffic glances over my shoulder. And what I saw was there was a house, just a, an ordinary family home, it looked like, and behind it, a little girl, I don't know, maybe four years old, five, was on a swing. And the swing set itself was mostly out of view behind the house. But the swing itself was swinging backwards just into my view. And the sun was shining on this little girl. And just at that very moment, when she's reaching that peak height of the swing set, is when I glanced over and, and just saw this moment and boom this feeling of nostalgia rushed over me now i didn't know this girl i didn't know you know the the i mean i knew the neighborhood but i didn't know anyone who lived in these particular houses so it wasn't like there was any um familial connection but just that scene i felt like i connected just briefly with something deeper and it's only in thinking about it afterward that it feels even deeper than that, as if I made a connection with eternity. Something pointed me to a crack in the veil that helped me see something infinite in a very ordinary, everyday scene. And I get this experience sometimes when I look out over a situation that I am not part of, but that I see. And it's almost as if I'm seeing with some kind of, I don't know, it's, it's a kind of empathy over a place or person or situation that I actually have no immediate connection to. And it can happen with those that I love, you know, seeing those I love, seeing those who I am connected with. But often, I think, I suspect, that my mortal experience with the individuals, my mortal, um, you know, all the baggage that's carried around with that relationship, which is deep and close, but the baggage around that often shields it from happening, that moment of nostalgia with familiar situations. And that's why I suspect that the feeling itself is something more eternal. Because 
it's in those situations, it happens more often in situations where I have no connection. And therefore, there is not much, if any, mortal baggage surrounding it. And yet, even with loved ones and familiar situations, if I'm consciously seeking it and allowing myself to quiet and let the whole emotional baggage and the and the uh, and all the memories of oh I forgot to pick this up or I forgot to do this that are surrounded with my everyday life things, if I'm if I can allow myself to lay those aside for a moment, I can feel that feeling of nostalgia that 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 connects with something deeper. Again, I just bring this up here in order to say that I think these moments of peace and calm and tranquility that are the native air of the other side, I think we can experience those here. And that as we seek those out, I think we're more likely to be able to make it through a day, to be able to hold on between moments of suffering and moments of of joy and laughter and fear. Sometimes those things can seem so overwhelming that they just make life almost unbearable. But in those moments where we can just touch eternity for a moment and allow ourselves to reflect on those feelings, either as they're happening or after, and actually dig deeper into them. Somehow, it's like those cracks in eternity. We see them and comprehend them slightly at the moment, but then in retrospect, because timelessness uh, is, is the native air of the other side, we can go back to those moments, reflect on them, and actually touch on the timelessness of them and expand that crack into something deeper and more. And they become anchors for us to be able to meditate on and and touch the other side more deeply, I think. I hope. So if you can find a way to do that, it helps. Anyway, if you would like to contact me directly, you can email me, chaz at ndepodcast.org. You can also email john at ndepodcast.org. You can support the podcast by either purchasing my book or my album. And you can also go to patreon.com slash ndepodcast to become an ongoing monthly contributor. And to those who can contribute, thank you. Thank you, thank you. You don't know what a difference that's making. And to those of you that can't, thank you, thank you for being here. Your influence, your your notes that you occasionally send to me, they mean the world to me. They really do touch me. And to all of you, whether you reach out or not, There is an eternal connection that's being made here. I don't know how it works, but it's happening. And I just want to thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you again for listening.